Yeah. I mean, the housewife world is a constructed concept. It was made. Like we made, Ford made cars, yeah? and, <laughs> and people have created ice cream and made pasta. We created the housewife. We created this concept. It's not something which comes out of our genes. Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. What's going on, family? Another great episode is here. We just want to first things first, handle some business, some little house cleaning, you know, just making sure you know that we have asked our guest and every guest that we have on here permission to have these conversations. And if you are engaging in such conversations with individuals, we suggest that you do the same, you know. And so as we move forward with this work, please get permission get the respect that the person that you're listening um, deserves. And then we can go from there and we can walk towards freedom together and not feel exploited along this path. So with that being said, Emily, let's get to work. Thank you so much for having me. And I, you've really done something very special there. And it's so important to just set the frame and the context, isn't it? So one thing that I've always like, thought is how do you bring permission and respect? Mm-hmm. And, and that's funny, the only way permission can work. So yes. if, 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 you know, you know, that's one of the things I really try to get through to people sometimes is that if respect is not there, then people will never ask permission. But if they do, it will be fake. Yeah. Do you know how intertwined respect and permission is? Yes. It's only then can people be vulnerable if there is respect and permission in, in the room or in the yes. space or in the air. Thank respect you. Just like that. Yes. Just yes. like that. And as our listeners can tell, we have an amazing guest with us today who's going to shed light on so many different topics. We have Imran Ray, Rayman or Rayman. 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 Yeah, yeah. Okay. Here with us today. So welcome Imran. <laughs> hey, we're hey. super happy to be here from, from the heart of Vienna in Austria um, and yes. tuning in to this amazing globalized digital world. Um, yes. So just being able to hear your voices, Emily, and your voice, um, Courtney. Thank That's you awesome. so much. Just, thank you so much. So Imran is a colleague of mine and a friend met through our work and we've been able to team on some different things. He is an incredible leader and he has some really profound perspectives on dialogue and dialogue in business in the in the business context, you know, working with executives, working across teams. His current work, he's a CEO of Kokoro, which is a web-based tool, beautiful web, so elegant. I mean, Imran, you're you're one of your superpowers is elegance, like simplicity. And it's amazing. And his business reflects that. And the tool is all about creating conditions for healthy, high-performance teams. And so his team at Kokoro has been spending the last five years. And I have seen you go through this agony at times, just like researching and refining and understanding human systems, dialogue. I know you do a lot with chaos theory and looking at the connection between the science of belonging, psychological safety, and optimal flow experiences in the workplace. So we get to have him here today to talk to us. Really want to focus in on this question of like, how do you create 
dialogue when there is such huge power differences in the room, because I see a lot of my clients kind of coming up against that of like, yes, like let's do this DEI strategy. Let's do these things. Then we have the white male CEO and then all of the advisory groups from historically marginalized populations. And it's like, well, we can't just walk into this room and have a level playing field. How do we co-create thought in the context of trying to disrupt things and create more optimal conditions while acknowledging power doesn't just disappear. <laughs> okay, so, so that's my big working wow. question. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that triggered so, so many parts of my brain. Yeah. So, so many little parts, but I'm going to really so, give that a good go. So we can, we can talk about that kind of like throughout the course of today, but mm. I really want to learn first more about like, can you just tell us about where you grew up, like what led you to focusing on this and yeah, just like bring us into your story and life a little bit. So I think where I always begin is um, where communities like ours, where I grew up with my parents and where we learned where our grandparents came from Mm. um, actually set us up for life. And the way they set us up for life is once we know what's in the belly, of our mothers, and then we decide whether we decide their jobs already, and we know that we're going to marry them off already, and mm-hmm. we're going to choose everything. So I, I grew up in a community where everything was decided for me. Mm. So even before I was born, there was this lingering sort of he's going to be a lawyer, he's going to be a doctor, an engineer, he's mm-hmm. going to be a business person, or you know he's going to just be a very good son. So that's where I come from. I come from a world where things are decided for you because the elders knew better. Mm. And back then when my parents, you know, became parents, um, I think the world's population must have been around 2 billion. Now, knowing that we're moving to a world where we're going to have about 9 billion people, those elders, they might bring experience, but they don't bring anything else more than that. And that experience can only be used to hold room and space, but they don't and they shouldn't bring recipes of success. Mm. So that's the world I grew up in. And that's what really started to form me because I struggled. Mm-hmm. I struggled because in my community, I was known as the coconut. And if you know what that means, you're brown on the outside and you're white on the inside because I mm-hmm. spoke to everybody in my community. It didn't matter if they were from this background or that background because I realized we all have problems with our parents. That mm-hmm. Parents have problems with other parents, uncles and aunties. You know, I don't know how it is in your community, Emily and Courtney, but everybody that comes into the house, as long as they're an adult, is an auntie or an uncle. Mm-hmm. And then all other blood relatives have different names and labels. Mm-hmm. So like my father's side, my granddad was Afghan. Um, he was married to a woman from Kenya. How they met, we don't know, in the early 1900s. My mother's side, my nanny, my mom's mom, was Russian-Mongolian. And she was married to somebody from around the South Kashmir. Near, he grew wow. up somewhere near K2. And these families came together because of one sort of norm they had. And the norm was we don't marry our first cousin, like you do in Catholicism. And Protestants don't do that. Lots of other people don't do that, but mm-hmm. Muslims and Catholics do. That's what led to my parents' meeting, um, mm-hmm. our family's meeting. And um, my father left the Indian subcontinent when he was 17, 18, went to the UK. They were um, in Kashmir my, before? No, they were actually in the Punjab. They all moved oh. to the Punjab, you know, okay. um, which was then the Punjab in Bharat, which was the the term for the country of India before mm-hmm. the English gave the country the name India. And we ended up 
moving a, a lot. I think I went to 26 schools. I think that was oh one aspect goodness. of my childhood that formed me. So there were points in our life where every three months we changed school. There is a story connected to leadership later on and, it, uh, and through the coaches and mentors I've had in my life, I worked out something and I can talk about that later mm-hmm. and why I got an interest in what I've got today. And then what happened along the way was just all the pain I mm. saw. I saw men who were emotionally struggling and not being able to deal with their families and all the people who lash out. I saw women playing their games. They didn't have maybe the strength to lash out, but they lashed out in their way through the complex family dynamics. And then I started realizing a simple sentence. This was one of the first things I realized when people would say to me, Imran, don't worry if they're, they're calling you all these names at school and making you feel you're brown and you're different and you're not white. Because, you know, we say, I'm sure you say it as well, sticks and bones might break your bones, but names will never hurt you. And I think that sentence is, is complete and utter rubbish. It's action. It, there's no, names do break you. Mm. Names will position you. Names will scar you. And you know what? If there is a lesser of two evils, then I'd rather be beaten because you'll mm-hmm. get you. It, was, it won't scar you the rest of your life. It won't scar you. Mm-hmm. We got caned. We, we got told off and caned at school continuously. It was, comp- it was the best league to be in. Who got the cane the most? It was the thing that made us laugh. Oh my so God. We, we, we shared in the playground because all you ever did was annoy the teachers and you say, uh-oh, I'm going to go and get slapped again. So you go up, you either get the slipper or the cane or you get your, your, what do you call it, your knuckles wrapped with a ruler. And then you count up by the end of the week how many times did you get hit. Now, you know, um, these things didn't really destroy us at our core. But what did and what created a lot of work was the psychological scarring created yeah. through the semantic of people and the groups that are around you. When... People would say, Imran, I can speak with you, but I can't speak with your other. And said, who oh. are the others? You're different. What well, different to what? Um. And, you know, the others, you know, your, 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 your creed, your kind, your, huh. you're sitting there thinking, what are you trying to do here? What the hell? And you yeah. can see, well, then you can start seeing how my background slowly led to me understanding and observing this in organizations and how we then create cultural fit in organizations. Mm. We create exclusive environments. We create sameness making. We create all the terms we know, why we need, why we were trained to code switch while working, while at school, because you would continuously told, look, in front of the white people, if you show too much of yourself, you will be shut down. <laughs> so learn to code switch, learn to be more of an introvert, learn to play mm. your language down. Don't be this, don't be that, don't show you're better. You're learning that just through conditioning, through experiences, like That's not explicitly. Yeah. No, no, because um, all the people around you were just saying, look, hey, there are pick your battles, as they would say. And, um, and that's, I think, what led on slowly to who I became. And then along the way, there were multiple crises. Don't get me wrong. You know, one of the biggest things was, who am I? What is my identity? And what am I allowed to be? And we've got one little, if I'm allowed to swear, shitty concept in this world, that you're only allowed to have one personality, one identity, and one passport, and you are this, and that's it. Because that's where power begins, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it also gives you an idea of why actors are paid so much, because in fact, at their heart, they're fickle. They can play so many characters. How dare they have more than one personality? It's actually funny, isn't it? The only way you can actually deal with actors is by paying them lots and telling them to shut up and not get involved. So that's another way of looking at acting, which people don't get, that they were seen as almost like angels because they could turn personality to different personalities. Because true intelligent people, you know, emotional intelligence is about finding your true self and your one true self. 
Mm. And then what happened is you saw that was the basis for a lot of psychology, a lot of the, the work we did, and that led to the environments we created to help people with, you know, behavioral disorders, some sort of illness, if you want to class it as an illness, whether it's bipolar, whether it's depression, whether it's schizophrenia. And I think today we're realizing that we have a long way to go in understanding how to deal with that. And the reason I'm talking about that now is because my dad had a proper Bullywood sort of life where the older brother tried to kill him. My oh dad my lost everything. He mm. did not understand in his world that why did his family do this to him? He became suicidal, manic, depressive for all his life until he died last year. And that is what has then shown me along the way because I spent my childhood going to hospitals and playing table tennis with, you know, the Archangel Gabriel, Jesus. I met lots of people from the Bible in these walks, these hospitals, and they were lovely people. And they could play table tennis really well as well. So so all these things actually are surmounted. And then my brothers and sisters, and um, growing up in the community of London where we had our Caribbean community, we had our African community, we had our Indian community, our Bengali community, and our Irish community. Our, we had lots of people. And that's the world I grew up in. And I started realising... So actually, when you saw this work, it was magical. It was absolutely, it, it gave all of us a sense of belonging. And one of the things that you always realize, and this is it, is when you spoke, and very often the women were able to do this, is when they, the women got together and said, how do we bring people together? And how do we get the people here who, who can't eat pork but can eat halal, or they eat kosher, or they eat this, or they eat vegan, or they eat that? How do you create then a street party where all this can happen and we're in one place? And they created these inclusive environments with such ease. But it all started off with one simple thing, the ability just to let the other one in, just letting them in. And you know, very simple concepts like, you know, if you have a guest, if you have more people in your street than you put out along the table and you don't look at them up and down and think, what are you doing? Mm. And, and that's what we do today, don't we? We continuously see somebody's a threat. And the only people in the world that should really be doing that and still need to do that, sadly, are women. Women need, no matter what context they're in, safe mm. or not safe, have to check out if they're safe first. So that's why one of the behaviours that a lot of men don't understand when they interview them for leadership positions is every woman I've known, and there will be no woman in this world who doesn't do it, you first check through doubt the environment you're in to see if, you're safe, if it's safe enough to say what you need to say. Wow. Um, and it doesn't matter how intelligent, it doesn't matter how many PhDs you've got on your back, it doesn't matter how wow. privileged or white you are. Yeah, we know today that the woman that is discriminated against the most is, um, is a black woman. Yeah. Um, and if you're Jewish on top, what doesn't? Mm -hmm. So, and looking at all these things, it all comes down to my the stories I'm talking about. I'm trying to like summarize, like you know, thirty <laughs> years of of like what I saw in London and what I, I continuously pictured and what I saw in the streets of London and the values I had. Maybe there's a, a, one of the most exciting parts I found was I grew up in the East End, in E10, E11, E9, but we used to go to a market in in Walthamstow, which was E17. And it's the longest market in Europe. It's about a mile and a half, maybe even longer. But wow. very narrow, and in, on this at this market, you would get all sorts of people selling you things. Like you could you could buy a you could buy a stolen radio, you could buy potatoes, you could buy bananas, you could buy some plantain, you could buy you know Indian food, Caribbean food, some good cocoa chicken bread, you could buy all sorts of things. Hmm. But one thing you realize that if you could walk from the top end of the market down to the bottom end of the market and make friends with everybody, 
then you will be able to understand life and make yourself through life, making friends with it. Mm. And that's the value system I grew up with. And mm. I think mm. today, um, whenever I look back, people always say, where do you have this from? And I, I go back to the markets where, you know, everybody will get on with each other. And if they did have a fight, they'd work it out mm. eye to eye. They'd have the same language. And I think that's one of the biggest things for me is I've never been a big fan of praise. I don't like praising people mm. because what people don't get with the word praise is the other side of praise is punishment. So praise and punishment are connected to, to religion. It doesn't make religion a bad thing now, but what it does make it is I will only praise you, Emily, and you call me. You know, if I say, like, well, Dan, good job, <laughs> with my London, terrible London accent, what I'm really saying is you're almost as good as me. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> That's what you're saying, ultimately. Yeah. So, uh -huh. and if you are not as good as me, then I'm also allowed to punish you with my words. Maybe next time you'll be good enough. So hmm. what is the language we need when we're working with people? So if you're working with your children, if you're working with your partner, if you're working with your friends, whoever, or working with you, people you do not know, then it's the language of encouragement. And I then say, well, look, how do you, you know that saying like, Emily, Courtney, you've done some great work and I want to give you some praise. And how do I do it in the language of encouragement? Mm. How does that sound like? And yeah. it's really, really hard to think of the words. How do I say yeah. hmm, How do I say that? It's really interesting. And it's a fascinating thing is you don't need to say anything. You ask You ask a question. You say, hey, tell me how it all worked out. It's amazing. And then go quiet and let people tell you their story. And you'll learn. Mm. Huh. Wow. You, you brought up so much for me right now. I look down. And I want you to know that I'm writing and taking notes and just trying to figure out the best way because this is our podcast. We're also like active learners too, you know? And so you've, you've done that right now. Just right now, you said something about definitions. And this podcast, we speak heavily about white supremacy and individuals and, and the cast that sets those decisions and makes it so that this is what you say, this is how you speak, this is how you act, this is how you smile, this is what you do in every situation. And if you are out of those boxes and out of those lines, you are looked upon as if you're doing too much, you're causing panic, you're causing trouble. And unfortunately, because of the stigma of the color of, of darker skin, you can't even exist without misdefining freedom. If that makes sense, like just you waking up in the morning and walking down the street because of the color of your skin, you have already broke what is acceptable in society. I would even take it even further, Courtney. I'll start even with the simple words. Mm -hmm. So we start with words like problem and crisis. Like one of the biggest things I keep struggling with is the toxicity of positive psychology hmm. and how that then makes your job even harder. Because when you do have a problem, as a black person or a person of color, as a woman, or as a marginalized person of a group within society, then one thing that always will happen is that somebody will come along and say, well, why are you, why are you making such a big problem? It's only a challenging situation to get through. Yeah. And I just want to cut that short. I really do want to cut that short. Let's start, first of all, with the word problem. Now, a challenge and a problem. Let's start there. And then we'll go into the word crisis. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then we see how these are all connected. Mm -hmm. and why belonging is so key in all three, well, more so with problem and crisis. Challenge. If I say to you both, hey, do you want to run a marathon with me next year? And you go, what, marathon? Get out of here. <laughs> and I go, come, come, it'll be a great challenge. And then you sit there going, do you know what? I'll do half a marathon with you. 
Or no, do you know what? I won't. Now there's something around the challenge that is optional. Um, nobody is being forced into something. The challenge will always be optional. Now, can you see what's happening the minute you have a problem and try to reframe it as a challenge? Then I have an option not to do it. Yeah. So what is the problem then? Like, you know, one of the things I work with teams and people will say, I always say, you know, people come and meet leadership teams and they go, so are you a team? Are you really a team? Do you sacrifice things for each other and do stuff like that? And they go, yes. And go, okay, if you're a team, then what's your problem you're trying to solve? And then they go quiet on me. They don't have a problem to solve. I go, well, hang on, you must have a problem because there is no team without a problem. Yeah. I mean, look at a football team, look at any team in the world that does sports, any form. They're trying to either get a goal into a net or they're trying to hit something or get something past the line and touch something. They're trying to do something, they've got a problem. They want to get something done. And, it's cre- and, and the thing is, there's people in the way stopping you to get there. That's your problem. Yeah. Yeah. So what problem do you have as a team? So it means a problem cannot be ignored. So a problem is something that cannot be ignored. When you have a problem, you can't ignore it. Somebody so, has to read the- so just to clarify, so you're finding that those those groups that like to identify as a team don't like to identify that it's actually a problem. And this is where like positive psychology is you problematic. Challenge, yeah. And then you, then you can get, you can be complacent. You can get big fat and happy. Then why deal with right. DEI as a topic in your organization? Because it's challenging. And you know, a challenge, you're, you're always being, you're able to opt out. It's like, okay, it was so hard this year, but we had to do one anti-bias training that went to, you know, I mean, and for the leadership, it only was 90 minutes. And for the rest for everybody else, especially with the people of color, we gave them two days of anti-vice trainings if they need it. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, and that's it. So you've got a challenge. I mean, you're framing things completely differently continuously. Then you've got the problem. You say, well, hang on, a problem cannot be ignored. Therefore, deal with it and get on with it. That's your job as a team. Do it. And then there's this word crisis, isn't it? And what happens then is you actually have a crisis going on, yeah? In your head, in the team, in the organization, in your life. And everybody around you is trying to frame it as a problem or as a challenge. So they, they move you slowly. And the thing is, one of the things about a crisis is that you've got to accept that it is a crisis. A crisis mm-hmm. means it's an emergency. Mm-hmm. So let's use, a, let's use a team example. There's a team of 10, six people leave. That's a crisis. Four people are sitting there and suddenly six people have gone. And then what do you do then? Now, generally, when you have a problem, you have two questions you can ask. What can I do? How can I do it? Two questions. Yeah. In a crisis, those two questions are wrong. Because in a crisis, the question is, who do I speak to? Because now this work gets very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. So a crisis needs to be stabilized. So therefore, you need help from somebody. Mm-hmm. Now, that is closely tied in with resilience, because resilience is always about dealing with a crisis. And that means when people have to be more resilient, they've got to be able to rely on other people. Because mm-hmm. resilience has to do with the sense of belonging in a group. Yeah. And that means that people, to create resilience, to see crisis through, you need to have understand who is the person you go to when you're in crisis. Mm-hmm. And that person goes, it's a crisis, let's accept it as a crisis, and then the relationships will work. Mm-hmm. And we're not doing that. What we're doing is we've got environments in which every individual has to be resilient. So one of my biggest, biggest pains for women and people of colour is the fact that, and you can tell me, Courtney, I'm sure in your childhood, and Emily, you as a woman, Throughout your lives, you were told to be resilient as an individual, mm-hmm. which is a load of bollocks. You can't be. That breaks mm-hmm. you. What you can have is grit. Uh-huh. But grit has one big problem. It runs out of energy pretty quick. <laughs> and this little virus came along and didn't want to go. And what happened to our grit after a year? Uh-huh. It disappeared. It's kind of losing their minds. Yeah, yeah, everybody was losing their minds, wasn't it? It doesn't matter how good you were. 
Yeah. And even the white folk were losing their minds. Yep. <laughs> because even the women there were playing these roles were saying, oh God, I've had enough, man. I don't want to be mama anymore. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's just a realization. Even white women were realizing. Yeah. <laughs> even the, white women. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were even realizing. Oh, the last people this? to realize. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but uh, who the fuck gave me it this is. housewife role? Yeah. I mean, the housewife role is a constructed concept. It was made. Like we made Ford made cars. Yeah, and, and people have created ice cream and made pasta. We created the housewife. We created this concept. It's not something which comes out of our genes. It is not something which has taken millions and millions of years and nature's gone, uh-huh, we need housewives. Darwin, Darwinism at its best. Like yes, everyone exactly. else is it's selected not, out. No, no, housewives happen. will live. Yeah, exactly. Like um, for you, Courtney, as, as a, a black man, you were you know labeled as this is what you do. You're naturally am I, strong. Am You're I black man? Strong. Yeah, my black, my black Thank you, sir. But do you know what I mean? Like one of the things that always gets me. Yeah, but Courtney, do you know one of the things that always gets me is like you know how you in the world of medicine are stronger than everybody else. Yeah. But if you get cancer, oh, you don't need medicine. You don't need painkillers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're stronger than everybody else. You're, you know, your body can take it. Yeah. And it, you know, people are not even doctors don't even realize. Hang on, you know what you're playing out there. You're playing out what we did to them over hundreds of years. Right. So we had really? machines working for us. Yeah. Right. So we could we rationalize. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We lost mm-hmm. a very dear friend to cancer. And Margaret, you know, she she grew up in, in London, um, a black woman in the East End. And when she got cancer, it was it was terrible to see how the hospitals were and the doctors were treating her. Because hmm. it was almost like, you know, you're, you're tough. And you're saying, no, 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 no. Can you, can you put this aside? Um, what helps people through a crisis is not tough and grit. And what helps you through a crisis is being able to rely on other people. It's the ability to go into relationships and to use now a German word, Bezugsperson, is what they use in psychology. It's a person you can relate to. So relatedness is key in building resilience in groups. Then I get all these lovely sports people telling me, yeah, but you need to have this winner mentality. See things through. Balls made out of steel. <laughs> and I say, yeah, once you feel psychologically safe and you belong, then you can have them. Only then great works. Right. And if you don't have the environment in which to be able to speak up and say, I'm not doing well, if I don't have somewhere I can lean from, know that I can ask the question, who do I speak to next when I'm in crisis, then grit will never work. I love that perspective, 100%. And I just keep coming back to a time in my life, but forget about me. I think about slaves and how they were able to to outlive and still living through, but the actual, the time, the period of slavery to live through that, the, the, those atrocities. Resilience w- is not something that always comes to mind with regards to that. I, what comes to mind is hope for a better day, you know? Like individuals, uh, including myself, before I started to even think about another reality, except for the one that I was, was I grew up in, was hope. Because hope gives you another gear in your car. It's always like you have this hard, 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 hard. But then when you hope for better, it gives you some more gas, some more stamina. To, to well, I'm going to add something to that, last, Courtney. You know? Yeah, but yeah. I'm going to add something to that. Because in the early 1900s, or maybe around, I don't know, maybe it started a bit later. But there was, when people started deconstructing literature, and started realizing what happened in the colonial times and how black people were treated. One thing that came up was this concept of third space. 
and that third space of how oppressed groups are able to create environments in which they could find that hope. But if you looked carefully at these groups and you saw where, you know, in the in the ports of Buenos Aires where they created tango, because it was the oppressed groups at the ports that started to dance, and that dancing created hope, because you were able to then, while you dance, laugh and, and connect. And that was Communicate. what you were doing. Yeah, yeah, you were once again saying, who do I speak to? Yeah. So now take that into any parts of the state or across the globe, the singing and the coming together. I mean, let's take um, a person... But there's what I always read stuff about Elvis Presley and how he was brought up in the black communities because he was absolutely pushed out of the white communities, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but where did he go to? He went to the communities where he found first shoulders to, to connect to, heads to yeah. lean on, places to cry. And then what happened was he saw hope. So first of all, there has to be a third space, a place of safety. And that's where the hope begins. But if mm-hmm. there is no safety, what people have is still optimism because they know after optimism comes hope. But then in between optimism and hope is a place where you can connect. And that was always the third space. And that's where the communities came together. And mm. if there's one thing, if you look at it across, what I've, one thing I've always found fascinating about the US is the community around churches. No matter what sort of church you go to, the community around churches is phenomenal. Whether you're an atheist or a believer or a non-believer, it makes no difference. But the thing is, you can go to church and you'll find somebody. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, how that works. So your word, hope for me, If you look at it from what people need from a neuroscientific point of view, hope is the last thing, it's the lowest thing on on what the brain needs. So as a social cognitive need, it's the last thing the brain needs. But it is the most important thing once you're oppressed. Do you see what I mean? It's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then it's what, can you see how it's now used as um, a beautiful instrument to keep you in place? Like, yeah, yeah, just have hope, just have hope. Mm. And that's what makes me angry. No, a hundred percent. When it's like, yeah. I equated a lot of times when pastors exploit hope for financial gain, you know, Um, because how do you quantify hope? You know, like you keep coming to church, you give me $10,000 and you eventually you get hope. Give me another $500. You get some hope. I need, I need, I need $30 more. You get some hope. Hey, hope is right here. Thank you. Can you see? Yeah. 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 Coming back to you, see what what we've done there now. Now, one of the things I'm, 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 I just really would like us to really start getting clear with some certain things that if you are a team, then find a problem to solve and solve. If Mm. you are, if somebody comes in is in crisis, don't try to reframe it into a challenge or a problem. Let it be a crisis and then say, look, no, don't try to solve it yourself. Find help. And if I am the right person, I will help you. Uh, I, I, like, I love this conversation because it's in everything you do. If there is no championship, why are there sports teams? Because there's nothing for us to watch if no one is fighting, if there's no problem to solve. Like the, the, the cup or the trophy is the problem that has to be solved. Who's going to get that? If you're a doctor and no one is sick, there's no problem to solve. We don't have a job. If there is no if, if you're a mechanic and everybody's car is perfect, we're out of a job. And so it's like a problem is this weird thing that's needed to give our life purpose. Yeah, well, that's, that's why it can't be ignored. Can you see exactly. that? Can you see yeah, why, 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 why I say it's something that cannot be ignored? A hundred percent. And that's why it's so important. Now, I'm going the to brain loves to... solving problems, right? Like it loves, it. it's exactly. like, woo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Totally. I mean, that's, I mean, I just don't think there is no other way the brain can be. It's, um, well, I had this one conversation in London. I was, um, her name was Shazia, and she's um, a friend I used to know in the Eastern of London. I still know her. And I was just thinking about what is education? And then I was walking with her and she was walking down, down towards 
where was it? Um, somewhere in the East End, Hackney. It was in Hackney somewhere. And we are just talking. I said, and I asked her, Jazzy, what is education for you? And she went quiet first and said, hey, mum, um, well, this is how I see education. Do you know, like, all the knowledge you got in your head? Because, yeah, take it all out of your head. Take, it, take everything out. Like, suck it all out. Well, everything you know, you know, the dates and the, the concepts and the models, take that all out. He said, yeah, okay, I'm doing that. And she said, what's left over is education. And it got me for a little mm. second. It was like, hang on. Yes, exactly. You're right. Because what's there is a network. And if she dropped me then in China or other part of the world, then it will start filling up because I have all these connections in my brain that will connect to things and start me start working things out. So it's, um, it's, it, it was a fascinating thing because what she was really saying was it, your knowledge is not your education. It's the potential. The potential. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And that's where it really got me for that. It, she, she, for this, yeah. you know, I was like stuck for five minutes in my head. And then I started <laughs> realizing what she'd actually done was just taken my brain down to what nature does. Nature is building a system continuously. Then it gets to a level of complexity where it goes, this is too much for me. And then we still don't know why it does this, but with a mm-hmm. bang, it simplifies everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and mm-hmm. it's, it's something you said about uh, like neuroplasticity and, and things that done nature when it, and especially when it comes to children. Because they're clean slates, and so they're they're like ready. They're like, mm. "What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next?" And so that's education. Like, I need it. And so if you See, learning uh, on the go, the learning on the go. Big, yeah, yeah, that is one of the things which how you deal with surprises. Yeah, tells me who you are. And kids love surprises, <laughs> and that's why yeah. they're they they can learn a language. I don't care how how intelligent you think you are against the mind of a child. There's, there's that, that, that computing power is not even, it, it's, it's light years ahead, you know? And so, yeah, yeah. yeah because they're, they have to, for survival, like they have see, to learn how to walk. They have to learn see, how to and talk. And I like that. Yeah, yeah. Because, and if you look at, if you follow mindfulness and the monks that have created it over thousands of years, one of the, the one of the only things that has remained over thousands of years of people meditating has been the beginner's mind. And whenever you meditate, and if you're, you've got a good teacher or a good whoever um, accompanying you, I'm sure you'll come across the concept of the beginner's mind. And, 100%. And I think that is more important than, now I'm going to must be upset a lot of people here, the horrible concept of mindset. Yeah. I struggle with it. <laughs> Down with mindset. <laughs> I don't know what people are trying to say to me when they say, oh, we need people with better mindsets. <laughs> what, what, really? So what picture of human do you have then? Huh? So tell me your yeah. picture of humans. You have humans who have good mindsets. So you're back into a space which I don't like. Where are you heading again? Yeah. Where are you heading again? And and people don't realize that a lot of words they're using, like cultural fit, mindset, you know, the, all these these words, a lot of words in performance are all based on colonial thinking. And they don't even know. And I don't even go there anymore. What mm-hmm. I do is I try to just say, look, if you want to talk about performance, there's only one way of actually helping humans grow and that is temporal comparison let's get scientific about it what it is what it's called temporal comparison what it is is an is is comparison so what that means is that i you want to learn something you do something for the first four weeks and then after four weeks you look back on the four weeks you have done and you say well how have i improved compared to the four weeks i have exactly ah temporal time yeah okay yeah temporal comparison what we're continuously doing I was thinking like uh, oh, like the part yeah, of the brain. The brain. Yeah, no, no, I was no, no, I was too in neuroscience. No. So yeah, no, no, I was like, yeah, yeah. 
but it's, but you're right though, Emily. Is exactly that because yeah. the other one we keep using, the one we use all the time, and our whole school systems are built up on, is um, social comparison. Hmm. I don't know how it was for you and you growing up. Do you know what my parents would always tell me? You know, the way you bring up children in, in, in the Asian community is you keep comparing them to the better son up the road, <laughs> the better daughter down the road. Right. When, I don't know how it is in, in, in your community, Courtney, but we, we always then, my parents would always say to why can't you be like Muhammad? Oh, yeah. Road? He's such 100%. a great son. And look at him. He's this, and you're like, yes. something, he's selling drugs on the street. And I'm, I'm yeah. just telling you. I just tell you what, yeah, exactly. It's, and that, that and, 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 and that's, one of the. Oh, yeah, oh, it's, I was going to say, like, we were talking about the EI surveys and talking about, you know, platforms that you can benchmark to industry norms. And it's like, what is that? What is that telling you when you benchmark to the industry norms? Is that telling you, you know, it's like that whole people just love that comparison. Let's see the (laughs) wow. Norms are created out of like comfort because our brains love patterns. And so when you say like, oh, that's the norm, that means enough people do it that way so we can mimic that and do it that way. So when you come with a crazy idea to do something different, now you're against the norm. And when you are talking about something as important as DEI work, I think we have to do it in a way where you clean out the closet, you clean out your mind, and you have a type of, of, of child mentality when it's like, I don't know what's going on, but I got to learn. I got to learn. I got to learn. Because it's very obvious that what's norm, like slavery was normal. White supremacy is normal. Poverty is a normal thing. Like ignorance is normal. So obviously those are not working. So why, what is the industry norm for DEI? Mm -hmm. What does that even mean? That's not even. What is that? What is that? What is that telling us? See, and there's always this whole idea of what people think excellence is. Oh, Yeah, do you know what I mean? So, and and that's one of the things that always gets me is then people sit there and think, oh, we want to have operational excellence. We want to create excellence in everything we do. And excellence goes back 3,000 years, back to the Buddhist scriptures. And and if you look at it, you'll keep coming back to one thing, start small and slowly get better and faster as you move on. Yeah. And that's what creates excellence. Excellence Mm -hmm. cannot be created from the start. It never will be. That is not the laws of the way excellence is created. It never has been. And and I've always liked that sort of idea of like, you know, then start small and keep building. Mm -hmm. Um, But then if you have a good understanding of the words you're using and realize what is a problem, a crisis and a challenge, then you as a leader will be able to choose what's right. Yeah. Um, and then yes. now this is now another thing now who is a leader then and for me everybody's a leader yeah so i feel like our conversation has kind of led to this place about dialogue and i'm i'm curious about it and what i'm hearing is we have leaders we have many different types of leaders we have labeling things as a a challenge a problem a crisis you know we have identity in there and we have we were talking about hope and like how there's, I mean, what I believe is like oppressed, historically marginalized identities have a, you know, with that hope is a vision, mm-hmm. a vision of how things could be different. That voice mm-hmm. is so important at the table. Mm-hmm. How do we then, you know, my, my work is within companies. So I'm going to ask within companies, but like how do within companies get these voices together at the table, very different power orientations and proximities like the CEOs. And actually have a dialogue that can bring forth the hope, that can bring forth what is that first incremental step that we take? That's a really good question. It's almost like, where do you begin? 
and mm-hmm. um, and I I'm, I'm I always end up with belonging and making sure that people understand that for people to embrace it, someone's got a model. And mm-hmm. one of the things we have not done is this. There's two environments we have not created. This is where psychological safety for me is so important. Now, there's very, you know, when young leaders come to me and say, I want to create, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to start with this psychological safety thing. How do I do it? And I give them something very simple to do. I say, well, look, go back to your team, look at your structures, look at your processes, and look at how you acquire information, how you process it. And the most important part is, how do you redistribute it within your mm-hmm. network? That's mm-hmm. the most important part. Mm-hmm. And when those three things work, then you'll have speed because psychological safety will always quick speed. Uh-huh. Then it comes, then it becomes a bit more, but you know, it didn't get a season. Somebody, you know, you built teams and being there and does this really well. And they come to me and go, hey, man, I want to build, you know, we're going through a really hard team. I've got teams across the world. I'm going to build a resilient organization. And this is where what you're talking about. Where do you begin? Where do you begin with all of this? And I go, and very often when I get the data from the people and I've been measuring that I get very often, we don't have any role models. Nobody's making it clear how we are supposed to do this. And then leaders interpret that as they want to be, people want to be told what they want to, yeah. you know, and it's not. The people don't want to be told what they want to do. What they're not seeing is leadership modeling belonging. Yeah. And Leadership and, modeling belonging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what it is. And then leaders come up to me and go, well, I don't see Yeah, but I mean, I have, I've done some barbecues. I've done this and I've done that. And I've done, and you're thinking, do you know what? Come here, let me slap you. <laughs> and, and sit down and let's have a, let's have a talk. Yeah. So, and, and very often, that sadly, they've never really sensed belonging. And if they have belonged, they belong to, the boys belong to a privileged community, a privileged yeah. group, not even mm. community, mm. Yeah. where they, and you know, when you do know you belong somewhere, you don't feel it. And I think that's where we need to begin. We really need to begin by, Really making it aware. And do you know what I would start with? I'd get rid of all leadership programs. <laughs> get rid of all leadership programs. And that would be the biggest fight. But I think if people stop that, get rid of all the leadership programs. And the first thing they start with is tell them your job before you can, be, you know, as a leader now is to build a community. Build a community. Go out and build a community. And we want it with a matrix structure. Or we want it with an entrepreneurial structure. Oh, do you know what? We don't want none of those. We want an agile structure. We build it with community. Mm-hmm. And what they don't get then is they go, but hang on, what do you mean? They go, well, look, don't you understand how the world works? And look, forget what your business administration and your MBAs. What you've got to understand is four ways you can build structuring in, in the world. And that is number one, hierarchically. And hierarchy will always work with who's got the decision, who's got the, you know, that's where power comes into play. If I have more information than you, Emily and Courtney, then I've got power over you, haven't I? So mm-hmm. that's a structure that's from, then I can include your exclude you boom done simple mm-hmm. as that that's hierarchy that's what you learn in your first course of coaching when you do systems theory yeah. mm-hmm. that's how you build it then you've got project management project management will break down into two parts either waterfall where you are trying to mitigate risk continuously and try to work out all the possible failures or mistakes that can happen and you try to get them out of the way before you build something and get it 100% right first time and then you have the other side, which is the agile world, isn't it? So project management done in an agile world where you work, work in small iterative steps and you learn on the go with surprises and you build on that. But then after that, people are saying, but that's still not good enough. We want people to be entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs or whatever you call them. We want people to be entrepreneurial and build. Da, 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 da. So you've got that structure in there, which then means, what does that mean? What does it mean to be an entrepreneur? What is that mindset? <laughs> and then... Then along comes, then the world gets so complicated because markets are saturated. Most products are only differentiated by a brand. Either it's a red brand or an orange brand. Uh-huh. One is able to charge 
150% margin, the other one's able to charge 50% margin. Those are the things that separate us now. And then you get into the world of real intention. You can't win attention anymore. You have to sell with intention, with, a, you know, with some sort of heart in it, with some sort of you now sustainability, ethical sort of standards. Hmm. Um, and the only way you can do that is through community. And nobody gets community. And that's, that's why I think wow. in the coming years, you're going to see waves. It's already started in the space of UX. You see anthropologists moving into the, you know, into the digital world. You see statisticians moving into, into the UX world, into you know, user experience, or what do you want to call it, customer experience, employee experience. We're seeing that engagement surveys have not worked. We see work-life balance failing because it was created by the boards, by the top leaders of this world, to help people deal with shit cultures. And now people are realizing, how do I build a community culture? And sadly, all the leaders we've picked so far have been picked on performance and not been picked on their ability to build community. Build cultures. Yeah. Yeah, and cultures. They don't, they don't know how to do it. They don't know. Mm-hmm. They know jack shit about it. They really do. They don't. And I'll say it to anybody mm-hmm. in their face. And it's okay. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you, you've got a lovely heart, you've got a lovely brain, you've got a lovely, you're a lovely person still. You can still go to church, mosque, and synagogue every day you go there. Um, but one thing that you've got to understand is you just can't break culture because all the KPIs, all the conditions, all the things that we measure you on made you into a person that can't do it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. You are, people love you because you're see. successful based on KPIs <laughs> that don't create community. What's mm-hmm. covered, like you 100% agree with that. Most individuals who have the great opportunity to be great entrepreneurs don't come with the thing of relationship building and community building and co- they don't. Marginalized groups, though, because community is all we have, when they do create businesses, they do come from, like, prime example, mom and pop stores. They, they All of the, the community-based, like, stores in the hood are all about, hey, come in here because I know you. Come get your haircut over here. We have a relationship. So you've been getting your haircut from the same barber for 40 years. And then you're telling your kids, you're telling they, they're telling their friends this and that. And they have a whole clientele and they never marketed to each other because of relationships, because of community. And so it's weirdly ironic that the entrepreneurial program that you speak of is up and running well in the poorest of communities. Yeah. And I'll tell you one thing, Courtney, that what I keep finding people don't get and it's so simple but to make it happen is really hard mm-hmm. is community can only begin once you start getting to understand that you have to give first before you take that's mm. the only way that's the fundamental difference between a hierarchical structure in which you take versus a community structure in which you give first mm. see mm. that means if you give you have to be vulnerable yes and, you, and and if you're vulnerable Ironically, we're seeing that it, it's a weakness. It's one of the strongest things because then we're working towards the bottom line. That makes sense. Because you, if you're vulnerable and you're bearing your soul and people are buying a piece of that every time they buy your product, you know, it's like, it's it, Can you it's, see it's why amazing. we're moving away? And this is what makes it so, so fascinating because then you have a bargain going on. Yeah. And that's the next thing you do with the community. It's like, how, what bargain are we trying to create? Mm-hmm. It's so important to get that right. And we don't. And then it doesn't matter what structure you put around it. You can even put a hierarchical structure around it. Mm-hmm. In some contexts, it's good to have maybe a few elders in the room who just decide on certain things. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad thing, but it's done at eye level. 
and these elders are there to encourage you to become who you need to become. Yes. Um, but within a hierarchical structure, it, it's, it's, it, people don't. People always feel that hierarchy is always bad. No, no, it doesn't have mm. to be. And um, you know, there's certain things I really do like with hierarchy when it comes down to the way we save people's lives. Um, when I see hospital teams work, and there is clear military. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I mean, military. Um, came up with it and made it work. But even with the military, they've moved away from hierarchical structures completely in the last sort of 20, 30 years. There are no more. No, because when you're going in um, into very complex environments, um, you need autonomous teams and autonomous teams to create their own structures. Hmm. So when I've worked with hmm. those sort of groups, it's been the most fascinating thing for me has been how do they create environments of accountability? What if a senior person has done a mistake and it has um, put everybody else's life in danger? So when you look at these groups of people that then create environments of accountability, how do you then create an environment in which people are seeing eye to eye and speaking encouraging language and saying, hey, Imran, what you did there could have killed us all, and though you're the most experienced in the room here, I need to tell you as the newbie. Mm -hmm. And that is what makes the difference. And that's why I get really, really sort of annoyed with some parents when their kids come into the room and they swear at their parents and they think they're being disrespectful. And I said, well, your children are disrespecting you because the fact is, if children feel so comfortable with you and are able to swear at you, you've done a fantastic job, period. <laughs> um, if they're swearing at you because you hurt them, they're also right. In your eyes, you might be doing good, but that's also good. <laughs> so what are you trying to do here? What, what is that you want, ultimately? And, um, and I'm always looking at, you know, the context ways and saying, well, one of the hardest things to do is to create an environment in which people are able to speak to people and hold them accountable. So mm. making it comfortable to talk about, about the things that need to be said that remain unsaid. See, that is what it's about. See. That's what we got to do. And how do you do that? And the only way to do that is to hold space. And you have to learn that skill. What's coming to mind for this and all, you know, one, one of the like very, one of the many things that drives me to really focus a lot of energy on DEI at the business level is because I believe our biggest task right now is to solve the climate crisis. And to do that, we need so many types of knowing at the table, so many types of understanding. And we have to create the conditions where all these different ways of knowing can be there and honored and like what I'm talking about is like, is the CEO who's like really in tune with capitalism, but also the indigenous elders who are really in tune with the earth. But also what I'm getting from this conversation are the people that are amazing at building community. Yes. To like value, to prop up, to understand the value of that. Because, you know, the work I do is the quote, the soft skills, right? It's still like devalued wherever I go. Someone said the other day, if they're called soft skills, then why are they so hard? <laughs> Which was funny. Yeah, this is like one of the things that I, I feel like I'm taking away from this conversation is like that the person at the people at the table who know how to build community. And like you said, Courtney, that that kind of spontaneous entrepreneurial community building is happening all the time. And you're pointing out in historically oppressed populations or marginalized mm -hmm. populations. And I think it's just so important to to not just value this the CEO who has who signs the checks, you know? And like that's not getting us anywhere. <laughs> it's not getting our culture anywhere. It's not getting our earth anywhere. And yeah. those are the things that matter. They really yeah. do and we and I'm and I'm like really 
But, you know, when I look at all these words and why, why, why did I end up on belonging, surgical safety and these flow experiences, mm-hmm. I keep coming back to them. And, I, and the more I delve into them, the more I start working with them, I, I keep realizing when, we, when I bring people back to simple questions, to like, you know, um, what do you need to learn and grow? And um, how do you raise tough issues? Um, these sort of questions. And I say, look, I'm going to let you go with them now and work on them. And mm-hmm. I want to come back when you sorted it out. They come back and they say, Iman, it was the hardest conversations we ever had. And then they say things like, and you let the new, you, then you then you let you hold space. And you say, okay, tell me more, tell me more. You make a few sounds like, mm, huh? And they keep talking, they keep talking. <laughs> and, and, and then what starts coming out is they start realizing that, yeah, but I didn't know that one of my um, team members does this. And you know what? I, I, I never knew that. And somehow I, maybe I can learn something from them. Then you start realizing they've created respect for each other more yeah. respect they've got to they got closer together yeah. and step by step you then keep pushing and you keep pulling you keep getting to explore more and then you start seeing things start changing in the team and then eight months down the road they, they then they call me and what did you do to us we, we, we're like we're moving things are happening hmm. it's almost like spooky what you did and I, yeah. I didn't do anything spooky I, I haven't done anything spooky all I kept on doing was getting you to revisit something that's so important it's almost like like you know you brush your teeth every day yeah, like sometimes twice a day, <laughs> hopefully twice a day, maybe three times a day. But as a kid, you hated it. Like, ah, dad, mom, why are you doing this to me? Ah, granddad, grandmom. No, I don't want to brush my teeth. And But you brush your teeth every day and every day. And when you get to 90, you still get your teeth. <laughs> and that's what it's about. It's the brushing, yeah. of the, it's the teeth brushing. Mm-hmm. You do these little things every day and it then keeps us in tune. And that's what community does. Mm. That's what mm-hmm. community did to me. I think I am the person I am today. It's because of community. Oh, mm-hmm. yes, definitely. I am, definitely. I am, I am. Mm-hmm. And that's why I always say, but I've never understood this whole concept of individual greatness. I always say I'm the sum of all the people I've known. Mm-hmm. I am not the sum of me. Mm-hmm. I can never be. And if there's anything you want to do as a leader today, if you want to start off on your leadership journey because you want to lead teams and groups and build organizations, I think there is just... To start from the point of view, understand that you've been conditioned. There's nothing new in you. Everything you say has either been told to you, it's influenced you, it's a bias, or whatever you want to call it, it's inside you. There is, has been done before, and is, you are the result of lots of things around you. Yeah. Start there. Yeah. And that will keep you humble. Yes. <laughs> It'll keep you humble. And people come up to me and go, my style is this and this and that. And I go, yeah, well, yeah, well. Someone just cite you there. <laughs> you know, it's, okay, maybe maybe I've got to be a lot, a lot clearer on this. There's one conditioning I want to get rid of. The oldest, the oldest conditioning of all. It's called great man theory. Great man theory. Yeah. What is that? There is one man who's going to come and save us. <laughs> yes. It's the oldest theory of all. Yes. Years old. This person is going to come and save us all. And I'm still waiting for him to knock on the door because he has. I've seen lots of death and I've seen a lot of pain. I've seen a lot of her, I've seen a lot of trauma, but I've seen a lot of other things. I've seen happiness and hope and I've seen optimism, I've seen lots of it, but I still have not met this rational man. And in fact, that was one of the nicest stories. I went around the world looking for the rational man. That was mm. one of the projects I took on to mm. learn. And guess what? Did I find the rational man? Do you know how many men we meet who are rational? <laughs> I meet loads. Yeah, but I'm just a, a rational type. It's really interesting. You love politics in organizations and you call yourself rational. Seriously, you know, and I haven't found the rational man. And every scientist I spoke to said, we haven't found him. We still haven't found him. Yeah. We're still looking for him. Yeah. Wow. Oh, Imran, you've given us a lot to think about. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so much. It's incredible. I, I'm definitely going to re-listen 
to this episode a couple of times because there's so there's so much in there and yeah. you're weaving together uh-huh. the foundations of human psychology with spirituality with the realities of capitalism and <laughs> just thank you so so much for joining us today thank you thank you so much thank you cool. i really thank appreciate you, you. yes yeah and i recommend that folks we're going to put in the show notes some of the links to kokoro which is imran's business and you'll see the simplicity that he got to with such incredible complex understanding of of mm-hmm. humanity so i really i hope you go check it out well thank you thank you too thank you bye-bye Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.